Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Saudi Arabia hosts talks on Ukraine crisis. Has progress been made in paving the way for peace? China lifts anti-dumping and countervailing duties on Australian barley. What does it mean for economic ties between the two countries? And China welcomes EU foreign policy chiefs' visit this autumn. What can we expect? First, on today's show, Saudi Arabia says participants to the talks in Jeddah on the Ukraine conflict have agreed on the importance of continuing consultations to pave the way for peace. More than 40 countries, including China, took part, but Russia was not present. Ukraine says the talks are an attempt to secure support for Kiev's conditions for peace. Russia says prospects for direct talks between Moscow and Kiev appear remote. For more, we are now joined on the line by Shen Dingli, professor in Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. Thanks for joining us, Professor Shen. Thank you very much. Um, so, what do you make of the outcomes from the talks in Jeddah, and were there any significant breakthroughs or developments? Uh, no significant breakthrough as expected, but uh, still there are two uh, shorter progresses. Uh, one is uh, the, this meeting in Jeddah, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, agreed that the, uh, the country. Uh, participating in this event, what do further research for uh, eventual peace settlement of Ukraine-Russia conflict? And second, uh, at a, a later time, probably this fall, uh, there will be a heightened level summit meeting, not at the current level, uh, which is uh, uh, lower than summit, uh, to uh, discuss this issue. Personally, I doubt if there will be enough time to prepare for uh, such a, a summit. But anyway, these are the two uh, agreements. Uh, this round of talk has uh, conquered. Okay, but notably, Russia is is absent from the talks. How might that um, impact the overall effectiveness of the discussions? And as you said, if there's going to be a summit, uh, do you think Russia should also be included in the talks? Well, the peace process will be a, 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 a long and a hard uh, process. And uh, initially, personally, I think Russians should not be invited because Russians' participation would ring uh, the making of consensus uh, among all states. So other countries, Western countries, Global South, should achieve consensus first. And uh, for this round of meeting, No significant consensus. I would say for the next few rounds, there will be no significant uh, progress. If Russia would be involved in uh, such an early stage, even less likely uh, any significant uh, consensus could be achieved. So Russia should be put aside uh, to discuss uh, among the Western countries and among the global south and amongst the global south and the western country. This would be difficult when this country, country would iron out their differences. Then uh, engaging Russia, Russia would be morally 
uh, pressurized because it would confront with a world that is united, that includes India, South Africa, Brazil, and China, and other uh, countries. So that would make Russia less able to make any uh, such round of uh, meeting uh, to fail. So not to include Russia is to make consensus without Russia, and then to achieve consensus with Russia, that would, is going to be a very difficult, long process. Okay, but Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov criticized the meeting as a reflection of the West's attempt to continue futile, doomed efforts to mobilize the global South to behind Zelensky's position. How do you look at this? Well, he is jealous uh, for the fact that Russia is not invited. But he does not know this is a way to protect Russia. Because at this time, without Russia, the world is split. And with Russia, there will be even more split among all countries. So Russia should not be invited. In my personal view, this is a protection of Russia. Then uh, try to make consensus among the world without Russia. If that is attainable, inviting Russia. Russia will be very difficult to handle the entire world which would include China, India, that has a view that may or may not agree uh, in agreement with Russia. So that is a time Russia will be involved. So please wait. We would not ignore Russia. We respect Russia. But in order for Russia to make a consensus with the world, uh, stay outside of the rest of the world for the moment. Okay, so how significant is China's presence in the talks, and how did China's participation influence the dynamics of the negotiations? China's 12-point peace proposal may not be accepted by uh, uh, the country which is deeply involved, namely uh, Ukraine. But Ukraine's proposed 10-point proposal may not be totally accepted by uh, China. So Ukraine and China should talk. But they could not talk bilaterally. Uh, they could only talk in a multilateral fashion. That both would be pressurized because there are so many countries, 52 countries. China cannot counter the rest of the 51 countries. And uh, if was all the other countries except uh, Ukraine, think Ukraine should join the peace talk without demanding Russian force to withdraw from Ukraine first. Uh, Ukraine would feel pressure. So the best way for China and Ukraine to participate is to participate is to participate in such a kind of uh, multilateral process. And uh, all countries can say they can all agree and disagree through a very compli- complicated uh, uh, giving and taking process. Uh, they may achieve certain sort of agreement. Uh, and that during that process. I think the Russians' interest, interest would be, uh, to ex- some extent, be presented by China and India and uh, Brazil, etc. They would uh, help Russians' legitimate interest, even though Russia is not present. So as long as this global South will be present, Russia would not be uh, sidelined. Uh, its legitimate interest would not be ignored. So it's great that China can be there, 
to present its own view, to listen to others' view, and also uh, to defend the Russians' legitimate interests. Okay, and it is reported that during the talks in Jeddah, the Ukrainian delegation did not insist on a peace agreement based on Zelensky's plan, which uh, stipulates that any agreement between Russia and U- Ukraine can only be discussed after the Russian troops are completely withdrawn from Ukrainian territory. Uh, so if that's the case, what factors do you think have contributed, um, I mean, have led to this change in approach? Uh, I think due to two facts. One is that not all countries, including significant countries like China, uh, would enjoy uh, Ukraine's uh, rigid plan. Personally, I sympathize uh, with Ukraine. I do think when Ukraine's territory is occupied by foreign force, it has a right to demand that the occupying force should withdraw. But that is idealism. In reality, and for the second uh, factor, whether Ukraine can achieve it uh, through the battlefield. If they can do, they can easily launch a uh, negotiation uh, in which Russia would be uh, invited. And Russia has to participate, has to accept a political settlement without a battlefield failure. Okay, so uh, w- what do you make of Saudi Arabia's role as a potential ne- mediator in the Russian-Ukraine conflict? I think uh, uh, Saudi Arabia is uh, uh, a big power in the Middle East. It uh, has uh, lots of strategic resources, and uh, it uh, is uh, one of the regional major countries. And it has a kind of cordial relationship with all major stakeholders of this Russian-Ukraine conflict. It's an ally of the U.S. Uh, it is a good friend of China. And recently, it has improved a diplomatic relationship with Iran. And it also maintains a good relationship with both Moscow and Kiev. So if such a country that is not a direct, direct stakeholder in the Ukraine-Russian conflict 
and that is willing to invite others to play host. I think that makes a major stakeholders of this conflict. And other countries, they have a stake uh, to be willing to accept Saudi uh, to play the host. But of course, uh, there are more than Saudi uh, to be potential host of similar talks in the future. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Shen Dingli, Professor in Institute of International Studies at Fudan University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has lifted anti-dumping and countervailing duties on imported Australian barley starting last Saturday, three years after the tariffs took effect. Australian Trade Minister Don Farrell says the move is a positive step toward the full resumption of normal trade between Australia and China. Uh, I've consistently said, uh, including uh, uh, my warm meetings with uh, the Chinese Commerce Minister, uh, Wen Wentao, uh, that we would prefer to resolve all of our disputes uh, with, uh, with China through discussion and dialogue rather than disputation. China began to levy anti-dumping and countervailing duties against Australian barley in May 2020 with an implementation period of five years. For more, we are now joined on the line by Chen Hong, President of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies and Director of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University. Uh, so, Professor Chen, what factors do you believe contributed to China's decision to remove these tariffs now? Well, as uh, MOFCON, you know, the Ministry of uh, Commerce of China, indicated in the announcement last Friday, the uh, change in China's barley market has made it unnecessary for the anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties to continue to be levied on uh, barley imported from Australia. The uh, Chinese import of uh, barley from Australia is mainly for beer, you know, breweries, and of course also for husbandry and mofid, but mostly for beer breweries. Firstly, the demand for barley apparently is surging as the uh, post-pandemic Chinese consumption has been flourishing. As we can see, you know, in the uh, liquor shops, supermarkets and online retailers, you know, in addition to traditional beer brands and types such as Qingdao, you know, there have been, you know, numerous new brands and types, in particular craft beer, which requires higher standard barley for its ingredients. So the market apparently has bigger demands and the government has to adjust its uh, policies in relation to the market requirements. Secondly, as you know, you know, apart from Australia, another source for China's import of barley is Ukraine. And the current, you know, ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine obviously has its impact on Ukraine's imports, you know, exports to uh, China. So you see, on one hand, the demand is ever increasing. And on the other hand, the uh, source of uh, import or the alternative or additional source of barley import is becoming reduced. So I think this is the most important consideration for China to remove the tariffs on Australian barley. But mind you, the Mofcon does not overturn the verdict of dumping and the subsidy. So there could still be dumping and the subsidization for barley down there in Australia. But the market demand for barley makes that less of concern for China. Okay, so how will the removal of these tariffs affect the bilateral trade dynamics and economic ties between China and Australia? Mm. The uh, removal of the uh, tariffs 
didn't happen all of a sudden. It、uh, is not a whimsical or arbitrary decision. The, re- the reassessment of the、uh, situation took four months. Firstly, it was three months, and then China requested an additional, you know, months to complete the process of the,、uh, the reassessment. It was only after the due investigation and analysis that the decision was made. To end the anti-dumping and anti-subsidy duties, which was announced last Friday, I think that indicates two things, two points. Firstly, it shows that China is serious about its trade relations with Australia. The tariffs were decided and imposed in 2020 based on serious. Uh, you know, investigation, and they will remove the equally as a thoughtful decision. Secondly, China is earnest and ready to solve, you know, trade disputes with Australia. As a matter of fact, the deterioration of the bilateral relations during Australia's previous governments affected the、uh, interests of both Australia and China, and we are ready to work with the、uh, current Labour government of Australia to steer the、uh, relationship back on the on the right track. So, as you know, China has already resumed the imports of Australian, you know, coal and cotton, and there are positive signs that imports of Australian timber and lobsters are likely to return too. So, trade relations are the most important factor for the bilateral relations between the two countries. So, better trade relations bodes well for the improvement and development of the relations in various other areas. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, Australia has urged China to abolish all remaining trade restrictions following the lifting of barley tariffs.、Uh, so, h- how do you think China will make its decisions? Yeah, there are trade disputes between the two countries, Australia and China. And、uh, you know, in fact, you know, as long as there are trade activities between different countries, there could be always be disputes and problems. Business relations are always collaterally con- accompanied by you know conflicts of interests. I think what China has been doing, of course, in conjunction with Australia, is to seek solutions to the problems. As we just mentioned, there have been you know, difficulties previously regarding imports of Australian coal and Australian cotton, but we have worked hard to、uh, solve the problems. And now barley. So I think the removal of the、uh, tariffs on Australian barley indicates the sincerity on the part of China to stabilize and normalize. Trade relations with Australia, according, you know, to Australia, Australia also looks forward to exporting wines, lobsters, and timber, as we mentioned previously. I think China is making its assessments and make the decisions in its procedural, you know, pace and timetable. The decisions are made like this time regarding barley, you know, based on, you know,、uh, investigations and scientific study of the market, you know, domestic market and also global market and study of the new situation in Australia. For example, as I remember, the problem with Australian timber was that the、uh, Chinese quarantine at the、uh, customs、uh, discovered harmful insects in the timber from Queensland, Australia. So biohazard is always a serious, you know,、uh, issue for almost all the countries in the world. Uh, but bug issues could be, you know, solved over there with the suppliers in Australia. As long as the timber import meets、uh, China's quarantine, you know, requirements, there there would be no longer any problems. So things are proceeding, and China is seriously, sincerely working with Australia and the,、uh, with the Australian, you know, suppliers to solve the problems. Um, so, despite、uh, these positive developments, are there any potential challenges or obstacles that might still hinder the full, full normalization of trade relations between China and Australia? I think there are, you know, obstacles still existing between the uh, uh, two countries. No, not potential, but realistically, they are, you know, still there, posing a difficulties. The most important 
problem is that some political forces over mm. there in Australia have been politicizing trade relations with uh, China to make things difficult for their own you know, political gains. For example, Australia was the first country in the world to impose total ban on Huawei. In particular, Australia you know, bans Huawei for any involvement in their broadband network upgrading or construction. Another thing is uh, you know, about the unfair treatment of uh, Chinese investments in Australia. Chinese biddings and proposals for procurement, you know, acquisitions and amalgamation has uh, uh, mergers, you know, ha- have categor- uh, categorically been, you know, mistreated, citing, you know, political reasons, in particular on the dubious grounds of uh, national security. The system over there in Australia called FERB, that is Australia's Foreign Investment Review Board, is quite opaque with its uh, standards or, you know, requirements. The board in the firm could refute a bid simply on the ground of the so-called national security. No explanation, no clarification. They simply reject your bidding. And that's it. I think such a kind of, you know, Cold War mentality is very harmful for the, uh, you know, smooth cooperation and the collaboration between the two countries. Trade is trade, investment is investment, and the political differences shouldn't be cited as the ground for any, you know, hindrance of the economic and trade relationship, which should have been, you know, mutually beneficial. Okay, but how might Australia's alignment with the U.S. on certain issues impact its relationship with China and its ability to independently pursue its interests and partnerships? Uh, there are many voices in Australia, you know, people with insight and, in fact, the foresight. You know, the former Prime Minister Bob Eating, the former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, and many other political and economic figures, they have been appealing to the Australian government to pursue a more independent you know, foreign policy, in particular, a more realistic and logical China policy, which should be in line with Australia's own national interest. The problem is, as the United States has been working very hard to enlist the support and engagement of its allies and partners to engage in its Indo-Pacific strategy, which is purported to deter, to contain, and to sabotage China's development. So as we can see, you know, the, pre- the, the previous uh, governments in Australia, that is to say the later part of the Malcolm Turnbull government, and the entirety of the Morrison government, you know, Canberra has been you know, aligning Australia into the strategic orbit of Australia, even at the sacrifice of Australia's own national interest. The decline of Australia's relations with China had had been detrimental to Australia's interests. And thankfully, the new government of Australia, you know, the current Albanese government, has been, uh, you know, much more able to look at things, look at the geostrategic scenarios in a more rational and sensible way. China never asks Australia or any country to choose between itself and the United States. China is willing to work with Australia and other countries to contribute to account for a common you know, interest that is peace and uh, you know, development. That is exactly what we mean by the community of humanity with a shared future. Mm-hmm. And also, I feel there's certain kind of anti-China sentiment among the Australian public, right? So how do you think the Australian government should deal with uh, mm-hmm. domestic discordant voices, which could be a hurdle to China-Australia relations? Yeah, apart from the pressures from the United States, there are also you know, as you said, domestic elements. You put it very aptly, you know, as discordant voices, which, you know, could be preaching, you know, advocating confrontation with China. There are people, you know, politicians with vested interests, you know, with ulterior motives who persist in hostile policies towards China. Such elements or voices exist both in the Labour Party, the governing Labour Party, or in the opposition, you know, Liberal National Coalition, or, you know, among the uh, crossbench and independent Mm. politicians. Well, not many, but they could be, you know, posing as threats to the sound relationship with 
with China. I think for the Albanese government, the most important consideration should be the long-term national interest rather than short-term partisan gains. And that would actually contribute towards the uh, mutually beneficial uh, relationship. And that entails, you know, conjoined uh, efforts from both sides. Yes, thank you, Chen Hong, President of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies and Director of Australian Studies Center at East China Normal University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China welcomes the visit of the EU Foreign Affairs Chief Joseph Borrell and his delegation to China in autumn. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi made the remarks during a phone call with Borrell. Wang Yi said he hopes China and the EU can conduct more dialogues and exchanges. Morel stressed that the EU is firmly committed to developing good relations with China. He said the EU's Global Gateway Strategy and China's Belt and Road Initiative are not contradictory but complementary as both aim to promote global development. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Monnet Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so what will be the key objectives for Joseph Borrell's visit to China in autumn, and what issues will be discussed? Well, uh, China-EU relations, there's uh, one summit uh, with uh, three pillars. The first one is China-European Union uh, strategic dialogue, which is led by Borrelli actually. The second one is high-level uh, economic and trade dialogue. The third one is people-to-people exchange. So because of the COVID, all these uh, you know, dialogues actually uh, or postponed. Actually, the Borrelli's uh, trip to China postponed for twice. So his uh, maybe visit to China in October, uh, in autumn, to prepare uh, for the summit at the same time, also have the uh, in-person of the strategic dialogue with Chinese counterparts. Um, so Borrell said that uh, the EU's global gateway strategy and China's Belt and Road Initiative are not contradictory but complementary as both of them aim to promote global development. What do you make of those statements? Well, this is, uh, I think, a very welcome remark, uh, which Chinese side always highlights that we are uh, uh, neat and ready to cooperate with the uh, European Union uh, about uh, global strategy. Uh, gateway strategy and synergies of the strategy with the Belt Road Initiative, because every uh, both sides focus on inclusiveness. I think that's very good, uh, and most importantly, uh, for his remarks is against the couple. Uh, even maybe he said before, the uh, risk maybe call more new risk. So, uh, European Union need to work together with China uh, to address the common challenges we also face. The global gateway strategy, which indicate the European Union has a special comparative advantage, like in the traditional normative power, and uh, private sectors, private financing, and also uh, experience in invest in the uh, developing countries, particularly in Africa, to help Africans uh, transform to digital transformation and green transformation, which uh, BRI also highlights that with high quality cooperation. So we're very welcome. 
Yes, but it is reported that Italy is considering not renewing the BRI cooperation document. How, how do you look at that, and how might this affect trade relations between China and the EU? Well, there are two reasons for Italy、uh, make that kind of、uh, you know decisions. But of course, final decision not met yet, but、uh, met this the、uh, public、uh, debated. First is、uh, domestic political atmosphere. Four years ago,、uh, the Five Star Movement、uh, government party,、uh, that government actually is also new project,、uh, uh, started and renewed kind of BRI cooperation because they want to attract more Chinese investment, particularly for the port in the Mediterranean Sea. Also, want to have the synergies of the China model and the European model、uh, to ushering a new renaissance. Uh, later, but、uh, current government actually、uh, the branch for this party they also new politics about the against each other. The previous one,、uh, a five star movement, is more focused on、uh, strong government, so they have good feeling about Russia, about China. But the current government is more pro the United States, which want to defend the European civilization. The view of China is more systematic rival, so that's a domestic atmosphere. Internationally. Of course, it's the U.S. and the European Union press、uh, Italy uh, because next year、uh, Italy will be the rotating presidency of the G7. So the U.S. especially, if you not quit BRI,、uh, you cannot have full rights of the、uh, in the G7. So that's the current made、uh, this decision、uh, to want to quit. Okay, so how do you look at、uh, the EU member countries? Plan to reduce dependencies on China, as you mentioned earlier. The de-risking strategies.、Um, what What are their concerns, and what steps do you think both sides can take to address these concerns? Well, so-called de-risk actually、uh, the factor is de-China、uh, risk uh, means that、uh, supply chain too much rely on China.、Uh, not just made in China, good、uh, you know products, but also raw materials. And because they claim China,、uh, you know, during the COVID period, they locked down the、uh, tens of the millions of the cities like Wuhan, Shanghai,、uh, not so transparency, and also、uh, echo the American saying that today Ukraine, tomorrow Taiwan. So that's the、uh, logic of so-called de-risk. But actually, it's very difficult to practice de-risk because China, as a world factory, this is a division of labor,、uh, it's a market、uh, arrangement. This is、uh, economic rules. So, if we want de-risk, will be called more risk. The price will be increased. Is the burdens is will be to the European people. Okay. Yes.、Um, but to what extent do you believe EU's China policy is is influenced by the ongoing rivalry between、uh, the U.S. and China, and how does this rivalry impact EU's strategic cho- choices? Well, so, firstly, it's not China-U.S. strategic rivalry. It's more the U.S. want to contain China's rights to、uh, high technology and norms.、Uh, so China is just、uh, not want to compete with the U.S.、Uh, China never want to replace Americans with a new hegemony. China's BI and the community of shared future is want to seek the、uh, mutually connectivity. Is not、uh, seek the new hegemony. So that、uh, first. Secondly. Europe, of course,、uh, they claim they are the、uh, common values with the United States.、Uh, they think about the so-called the multipolar world. This is the、uh, U.S. Europe,、uh, one polar. 
And the second polar is China and Russia. And the third polar is the so-called global south. But this is, uh, uh, I think, the wrong uh, expectation because uh, Europe and the United States, actually, they also uh, uh, complete each other, uh, not just in the China market, but in the world. So that's reason Baruli said is a global strategy, gateway strategy, can have synergies with strategy with China's BI. But the U.S. never said the U.S. Uh, building back better world or uh, global uh, infrastructure uh, strategy have synergies of the cooperation with China. It's a different approach. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean-Monet, Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. This is World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. U.S. tech giant Apple has reported its latest earnings, showing that the Chinese market remained the brightest spot in its otherwise disappointing quarterly performance. For the three months that ended in July, Apple's total revenue fell by 1.4% to 82 billion U.S. dollars. However, revenue from the Chinese mainland Hong Kong and Taiwan surged 8%. Apple's strong performance in the Chinese market aligns with several other foreign business businesses, including U.S. coffee chain Starbucks and German sports clothing firm Adidas. For more, Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So China is one of the best performing markets for Apple in the three months to June, and its sales here increased by eight percent. And this is happening as the company posted a quarterly decline in global revenue. So, Dr. Zhou, why is Chinese market remain the brightest spot for the company? You know, China is a country with the largest population in the world, so we have so many consumers, and these consumers are really want to try some new things. And Apple is. Definitely one of the choices. So for the consumers, they would like to try not only for the hardware of the iPhones, but also related series of、uh, products from Apple and also many other Western countries companies. So actually, it's uh, uh, becoming uh, one of the biggest markets due to the population and the wide use of the different apps.、Mm. This has become one of the very interesting ecosystem. I think that is the reason. Mm. And as you mentioned, that Apple's strong performance in the Chinese market is in line with that of、uh, a lot of other foreign companies like Starbucks, like Adidas, and these multinationals. They are seeking to separate the business interests from the politicians' political concerns, and their links to China go even deeper. So, what does the Chinese market mean for them? Do you think? I mean that you know when we're talking about the potentials, I I would understand that many foreign companies want to try to stay here in China for not only several years but maybe decades. So in the past several decades, we know that Chinese market has opened our you know different areas to the foreign markets for the foreign companies, and while in the same time they are trying to provide better products and services to Chinese consumers. So in this regard, I believe that they will still try. Trying to make better use of the Chinese market potentials while accompanying with、uh, innovative policies by the government of China.、Mm. So that is definitely one of the the complex and the system work for them to do. 
Mm. And the tech giant Intel also continues to promote his business in China within the constraints of the U.S. sanctions on the Chinese semiconductor industry. So tell us more about that, and what did Intel do to strengthen its China presence? I think that Intel is、uh, one of the leading companies in the semiconductor for many decades, and it's it's a- appeared in different、uh, brands of computers, including the PCs and also the servers. So for them, it's a really a very good、uh, performance for them to improve their understanding about the, what's the need of the Chinese market, while provide better innovative ways to. Address their problems. So in the coming days, I believe that Chinese market is increasing very quickly on the e-commerce and the digital e- economy. So we will provide better and more choices for the companies, including Intel. Like we know that artificial intelligence is increasing very quickly in China, so it will benefit them also to to cooperate with other providers of the services.、Mm. And what do you make of the U.S. curbs on China's access to the advanced technology like semiconductor? What will be its impact on both the U.S. and China's chip industry? As for the economic theory, we know that、uh, the supply chain is a whole. We should try to address the different parts of the supply chain, like for the for the parts of the you know the high or advanced technology. They are trying to develop. Uh, for better technology to better performance by investment in prepare to to do that. While this kind of innovation or kind of products has to be you know get their profits by selling. So without the market, this input ha- will not guarantee their output. It's definitely not good for the future decisions on put more resources on the innovation and the development. So I think that、uh, these curbs or kind of decision is very harmful for the world to have a better innovative ways to address the challenges we are facing by climate change, by different kind of problems, including the natural disasters. It's very dangerous for them to continue with that.、Mm. And the U.S. says it wants to de-risk and diversify its relationship with China, and the Europe said. It wants to de-risk rather than decoupling with China. So, Dr. Zhou, how do you understand the strategy of de-risks? I do believe that de-risk, although it's、uh, raised by Europe, is、uh, have different meanings compared with United States because. For Europe, they are still in the、uh, in face of the challenges. Maybe、uh, have some relationship with United States, like the policies of the Biden administration is trying to attract more companies from Europe Union to United States. This is definitely a risk for them. Well, for United States, they are trying to put China in the opposite side. Of the competition in the market is not so good because when many European countries,、uh, for those companies, they still want to do business with us. So actually, for even for the de-risk, I don't think that it's a good way to just、uh, separate one country from the world market, especially when this country is、uh, one of the largest economies and the provider of、uh, products and services in the world. And what role does China play in today's global supply chain? Do you think? 
I, I think that uh, China is one of the main manufacturers countries in the world, and we have provided a wide range of things, including the final products and also the raw materials or intermediate products. So it's a very important uh, function for China to play. Without the supply, many supply chains will disrupt. And will we see the global supply chains decoupling from China, or should China be wary of some manufacturing, you know, companies moving their operations out of the country? I think that、uh, one of the very firm promises of China is that we are going to open our market wider and wider. Well, for the supply chains, everyone should try to depend more on each other. But this dependence is based on the confidence and some of the credit we have to get. To gain from the cooperation, so in this regard, we are trying to cooperate with other countries by improving the international rules or regimes cooperation and trying to improve the abilities for the market to to fight back against the uncertainties or some protectionism posed by some countries. And China's foreign direct investment recorded a net inflow of over 32 billion U.S. dollars in the first half of this year. So, do you think China will remain an attractive destination for FDI for the rest of the year? I hope that we can still be a very important place for the FDI to invest in. The world, because that we are still very promising. I mean, not only for the very certain、uh, political environment, but also for the attractive, great market in the world. So we are providing better policies, like for the、uh, free trade zones and also many other areas by opening our market. I think that、uh, in the world we see that there are some disruption of the supply chain, and、mm. some of the FDIs are considering about the possibilities of alternative ways of supply chain. Well, this kind of choices is not so bad, but we have to guarantee that investment can have a long-term return by the you know kind of activity instead of just a short-term return from the policies of certain countries in the world. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Optimism among U.S. small business owners is at a 10-year low, according to recent data from the National Federation of Independent Businesses. The organization says small business owners remain very pessimistic about future business conditions and their sales prospects. Inflation and labor shortages continue to be great challenges for small businesses. Fish Ratings has cut the U.S. debt rating from Triple A to Double A plus, citing worsening fiscal conditions and governance. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Yao Shujie, Chengkeng Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Um, so, Dr. Yao, we see that despite positive economic indicators such as low em- unemployment, receding inflation, and healthy GDP. These small business owners in the U.S. seem to remain pessimistic. Why is that? There are two possibility. I think、uh, the first possibility is that the the good statistics shown by the United States in terms of GDP growth, the stock market booming,、uh, you know, in, in low unemployment rate, etc. Those could be just a short term phenomenon because of the. Uh, very strong support by the the, the the U.S. government, 
uh, in terms of printing more money into the market. Uh, the second possibility is that there is some uh, uncertainty in the future because due to the high inflation rate and also consequently the high interest rate, they are actually built up two tambons for the U.S. economy. And small business, they may be concerned about this kind of potential uh, problem in the future because the high interest rate means that the high cost for the business and enterprises. And that would have a potential dumbing effect on investment and also uh, consumer investors' confidence. So this would trigger some sort of uh, uncertainty or even economy recession, as many people are discussing nowadays. Uh, but I have, I think there's a mixed story. It, it can't be totally optimistic about the U.S. economy, but it cannot be totally pessimistic either. Uh, in terms of the uh, optimistic note, is that yes, the current uh, macroeconomy indicators seems that the U.S. economy is doing extremely well given uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and also uh, the rest of the world is suffering uh, from uh, you know, slow economic growth. On the pessimistic uh, note, is that because the current uh, you know, uh, good macroeconomic statistics could be due to the short-term uh, you know, federal reserve action, first of all, to contain the, the inflation and the, the, the consequences of high interest rates could be in the medium and the longer term. So this uh, is some sort of uncertainty and worry. Of course, this problem would trigger to the small business who are the most vulnerable in the U.S. economy. Uh, and the bigger uh, business are, seems to be doing better than the small one. And this is the uh, phenomenon we, we see today. Yes, but, you know, the economy is often considered a reflection of consumer sentiment and vice versa. So how might the low optimism among small business owners contribute to potential feedback loop impacting consumer spending patterns and economic growth? Yeah, consumer-wise, because of the the printing of money to stimulate uh, consumer demand. So, uh, you know, retailing and consumption seems to be booming. And this uh, some sort of con- consumers' confidence, but for the investors, I think the investors are probably more long term. Uh, you know, compared to the consumers, they they see some potential risk in the future, and the immediate uh, you know threat for them is the high cost of borrowing, and also the difficulty of borrowing because they have to pay a very high interest rate. And this is uh, uh, a, a big issue. The other issue is that because the cost of capital is high, uh, the profit margin is low. So the capability for the small business to invest in the future is is is, is content. So uh, there's a mixed story here, and the pessimistic um, you know situation of the business could actually go into uh, impact the consumer. Uh, demanding the future if people find it difficult to make money. Okay, so how do you look at Bidenomics and its potential benefits and drawbacks for small businesses? The Biden economy actually um, is it, fairly supportive of making 
the, the short-term uh, investment by the by the state government for the small business and the uh, employees. But uh, I, you know, it, it's actually at the expenses of the the long-term uh, you know sustainability because Biden has been uh, allowed the, the debt credit limit uh, to increase uh, you know one time after another. And the decision to increase the credit limit is actually uh, boosting the economy development in the short term. But as I say, in the longer term, it could uh, become a difficult problem. Yes, and then as we know, Fitch ratings recently downgraded the U.S. debt rating from triple A to double A plus, um, citing worsening fiscal conditions and governance. So, how might this downgrade impact small businesses and their access to financing or borrowing costs? Yeah, the credit uh, rating agency, although it's only one credit uh, agency, who are uh, you know downgrading the U.S. from triple A to two A plus. Uh, this is the uh, a very unusual downgrading, and it's precisely reflecting the the point which I just uh, discussed. Uh, because the the high interest rate is actually dumping the the future growth perspective, and uh, if the future growth uh, perspective is low, then um, the 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 ability for the government to manage the macroeconomy would also be reduced. And this is why the credit is low, um, and this just sends a very uh, strong warning uh, signal uh, to the Fed, Federal Reserve, and also to Biden administration. So this um, is some sort of uncertainty at the moment. Despite, as we say, uh, it looks fairly, uh, you know, low, fairly lousy at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then Fish also cited an erosion of governance over the past two decades that has manifested in repeated debt limit standoffs and last-minute resolutions. I mean, how how do you look at this? Yes, I'm. I mean, um, the 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 U.S. is doing a big gamble here. The gamble is that as long as I can print the money, as long as the liquidity in the market uh, is guaranteed, then the business will be okay. The consumer be fine, and the wage earner would, would expect to increase their wage level uh, higher than the inflation and so on and so forth. It sounds good. But it's precisely because it's so good that people have to worry the underlying uh, problem. The underlying problem is that the high interest rate, as we, we mentioned at this moment, can it going to be sustainable? Sooner or later, I mean, according to uh, you know, fairly standard economy theory, uh, if the interest rate is, is too high, uh, the the investment rate will be will certainly slow down. And if the investment slow down, if the profit margin of the enterprises, particularly the smaller enterprises, are going down, then the future perspective for the U.S. economy is not going to be sustainable. Okay, thank you, Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkung Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. Thank you so much for joining us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap for today's headlines. Saudi-hosted meeting on Ukraine ends with pledge to continue talks. China lifts anti-dumping and countervailing duties on Australian barley. And China welcomes EU foreign policy chiefs visit this autumn and optimism among U.S. small business owners at 10-year low. 
To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for more discussion, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.